0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day.
1: I'm Angie, and I am an alcoholic. I'm not nervous, (laughs) so you don't have to do any of your little stuff. Um, I want to thank Jerry and the committee for inviting me. But especially I want to thank my husband, Richard, for coming here tonight. You know, uh, the reason I want to thank Richard is because he can hear me anytime he wants. Uh, He can even hear me when he doesn't want. (laughs) And so he's making a great sacrifice. I also want to thank my my daughter, Lorraine, and her husband, who, who, I, who I sponsor, and so he, I'm his mother-in-law and his sponsor, so <laughs> poor guy ain't got a chance, huh? He ain't got a chance.
0: <laughs>
1: I come to you from Blythe. You all know where Blythe is, don't you? He's <laughs> huh? 116 this morning at 8, so that's where I'm from. You know what I'm doing in Blythe? Richard is what I'm doing in Blythe.
0: <laughs> huh? There's
1: nothing else you give me to Blythe. <laughs> but, you know, he's a great guy, and I just really uh, love him more than life himself. It's just, he's just a beautiful person, and, and I really adore him. He's the a, a first toad I ever kissed to turn into a prince. <laughs> huh? I love him so much that um, I've got him convinced he never had it so good. He thinks a woman's place is in the mall. And we're both dedicated to making me happy. Uh That's what I'm doing in Blythe. I wasn't always from Blythe. I'm really a transplant from Orange County. And I was really born a long time ago. I'm really a young person in an old container. But I i was born a long time ago into a family that wasn't ready for me then and isn't ready for me now, and they're not going to be. Uh, they, when they came home with this baby, they didn't have a name for me. And the reason for that... Is because my daddy wanted to name me after his girlfriend, and my mother's (laughs) narrow-minded. I had an older sister that was perfect. You know the type I'm talking about. They always told her what to do, and she always did it, and she always did it right. And she screwed it up for me because I never knew how to be good. I never remembered how to be good until after I was bad. And then it's too late. Then they're always whipping on me. I don't know I'm a better child, but I held it against them guys. I held everything else against them. I just thought that's a price you have to pay for not knowing how to be good. Now, them people were divorced when I was seven, and my mother would say things to me like, you're just like your father. You know, she got them little purple lips. (laughs) Not blue lips because she's a Mexican. I'm a Mexican in case you didn't know that. so she sent me to the nuns so they could teach me to be a lady. And what the nuns thought was a lady wasn't appealing to me then and it isn't appealing to me now. Um, uh, Not only did I not know how to be good, I may not have thought of doing it, but as soon as they said thou shalt not, I had an overwhelming desire to do it. And, And I... I couldn't get it out of my mind until I did it. Today I have trouble with don't tell me thou shalt not because i got to do it no matter what. And so somebody dared me and I raised the non-skirt she, what she wore under all them clothes. <laughs> and they 86 me from catechism. And um, I was always such a bad influence. I, I guess I was their lower companion. And... Uh, um, When I got home, got my whipping. You know, my mother was also, as as, uh, was mentioned last night, of the type that it's okay whatever you do as long as the neighbors don't know it. And uh, um, when I got to school the next day, all the kids thought I was terrific. And it seems to me that I was born with an emptiness in my soul, a yearning, a hunger to be wanted, to loved, and accepted. And as a little child, I used to ache inside. I worshiped my mother, and I wanted her love and approval so desperately, as it seemed to be that uh, my brother and my sister were getting. But there was something terribly wrong with me, and I never was enough. I always felt like I was not enough, that there was something wrong with me that anybody else could see, but I didn't know what it was. So when I got all that attention from those those kids at school, it filled up, some of them empty places. Me, I believe I always had the pilot lit. All I needed was the fuel. You see, it seems the overriding emotion of my life, as far back as I can remember, as hugging myself and rocking myself and wailing like a wounded animal, not knowing What is wrong with me? So hungry for love. I'll give my heart to anybody that will take it. You see, I don't know what is wrong with me. And uh, things were happening in our home that uh, I guess nowadays we're talking more and more about. And my stepfather was uh, uh, getting funny with me. And I tried to tell my mother about this, and she said I lied. Uh, I know today that she couldn't face it. And uh, I had an anger inside of me, a feeling of betrayal, of uh, feeling like there was never anybody there for me. So I started to do the th- the only thing that I knew how to do is I started fantasizing. And I started thinking about if I could only be over to my daddy, everything going to be all right with my daddy. Now, my daddy was over in the San Fernando Valley where he'd taken up light housekeeping with a lady with eight kids. And all he wants is one more. So there I I stole to go over to my daddy's. Now, my daddy was, was a person that used to contract up here by by Modesto to take people to pick grapes and prunes. And, and we were fruit pickers. And you know, God made two kinds of Mexicans as fruit pickers and not fruit pickers. And I'm not a fruit picker. They try to make a fruit picker out of me. (laughs) In in fact, I've gotten attached to a lot of things. I've really liked a lot of things and I like them until I don't like them and I still keep doing them. Work ain't one of them. And Richard knows this. And he tells me that that if he ever feels like he's going to croak, he's going to run to the freeway and eat a truck so I can get double indemnity on his insurance. Huh? That's what I'm doing in Blythe. (laughs) Well, there we were picking uh, grapes for uh, the Gallo brothers over in the Twilight Zone in... uh, in a little town called Livingston. Oh yes, I do it, I know it. We stayed beyond the season with the Gallo brothers, and they gave my dad a case of sherry white. And somebody must have said, "Thou shalt not." I had a big water glass of that sherry white, and when it went down, it went down good. Everything felt wonderful. It's just too bad something that good has to be wasted on social drinkers that don't appreciate it. i appreciated it.
0: Any minute now, I'm going to
1: have me more and I'm going to feel that way forever. Wow. As the next day, I don't know what happened. I, before I know it, I come to and my hair's all over me. I don't know whether it's day or night. I mean, you know, I told you I was born a long time ago in them Pachuco days where you were the big hairdos you come to in that hairdo. Oh, I love it. you know, I, I had a sense of shame, of being dirty that went all the way through me. I knew I had done something terrible. I was scared to know what I'd done and scared not to know. And it seemed to me I started a lifetime of looking at people's faces, trying to figure out what I had done by the way they looked at me. And, you know, the way I felt about myself, I always saw disgust and contempt in their faces. And it also started a lifetime of uh, my saying, I don't care. I don't care. I don't give a damn. I always had to either play a clown or be violent because those are the only ways I ever handled anything that was embarrassing. It wasn't um, any different than any way that I ever drank after that. It just was the beginning for me, the beginning of secrets, the beginning of uh, trying to hide how I felt. I went back to my mother, and I was told I couldn't come home. I had uh, not the size of my fist. I'm just a child, and I was told that uh, I couldn't come home, and I had no home, and I started running the streets, here, living here and there and everywhere, babysitting, staying with friends, of uh, my mother. And uh, um, this is the time when I discovered the booze and the boys and the cha-cha-cha.
0: God!
1: <laughs> I love the booze and the boys and the cha-cha-cha. And, you know, we we Mexicans, we like to join them gangs and beat each other up and call it fun. (laughs) We have them parties that last a whole weekend. You don't have several knifings and several shootings. You don't have no fun. You know, always got to be in the middle of all this bullshit. That's a lot of fun. I also don't know how to work, so I take up burglary. I, I really, I mean, I'm too young to work, and your things are always much more interesting than mine. If anybody ever lived over in Lemon Heights in the late 40s or early 50s in Orange County, I'd like to make my amends tonight. <laughs> Probably your grandparents live there now. Anyway, I really was surprised when the state of California discovered me. They, they didn't understand my case it was different. I was only having fun. They took me before this judge that looked at me, and they said my mother and all the other purple-lipped people sitting there, you know. And I'm sitting there slick hip and cool with my. Yeah, at that time, we used to wear our collars up and slouch down on our seats. And the judge asked me, well, young lady, what do you think we have to do with you? And I said, well, you're the judge, man. You ought to know. I was a <laughs> wrong person to have that kind of an attitude for. So he sent me up to do a little bit of time for the state of California. And um, I'm supposed to do nine months, so I do 13 months because I don't know how to be good there either. Uh, I, I'm a walking bust. I got caught in everything I ever did. And uh, when they finally let me out, I thought I'd be the only gray-haired little old lady in the girls' reformatory when they finally let me out, took my first inventory. I don't have a job. I don't have a home. I don't have any money. I don't have an education. I'm thinking, what in order. I can't go through with it. (laughs) I thought, I better go and find me a husband. (laughs) And I went out looking for a husband in places that husbands have not to be looked for. And I found one.
0: <laughs>
1: I've been apologizing to my kids ever since.
0: <laughs> my
1: youngest daughter sent me a, um, a card for Father's Day for Mother on Father's Day that said uh, she forgives me for Carlos Miguel. <laughs> I mean, that was the kind of man that always caught my attention. You know, usually they got big muscles, huh? And them tight t shirts, huh? They walk with a little slouch. They got tattoos. One says, mother, (laughs) born to lose. (laughs) They got slick black hair, shiny eyes, all teeth. (laughs) And they say, what's happening, baby? Oh, God. I used to think that look was charisma, but uh, today I know it to be psychosis. (laughs) My sponsor says you can't make chicken salad out of chicken ship. but we tried.
0: We tried.
1: He built them castles in the air, and I lived in them. And three months later, we were pregnant, and I was married. And I married a mainline heroin user. You just don't live happily ever after. What of those? very exp- exciting, but not very happy. He had an idea of what a good Mexican wife should be, and I had a good idea what a Mexican husband should be, and never the twain shall meet. And we both got the scars to prove it. Now, after a while, he don't want me to tell him uh, things about his mother and his grandmother and the, who his father was and So he wants me off his back, so he introduces me to little white pills with crosses on them. He don't want me to drink because he hears about all them stories about me when I'm drinking, so he lets me take little white pills with crosses on them. I don't know what they are. But I had one eyeball over there and one over there, and I'd make baby clothes all night long. (laughs) could not tell whether I'm putting it together or tearing it apart. You know, I just... (laughs) Drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, chew gum, sing with them mariachis, cleaving your house with a toothbrush all at the same time. I don't need nobody else there to have fun. I'm having fun. Three days later, I'm still having fun. God, I want to quit having fun. I just can't stop doing that. Once I started taking uppers, I got a take downers, and I found the secret to the blackouts, and I thought, well, I started drinking whatever would get me, whatever I'd place that I wanted. And I was very, very busy. By the time I had my baby, I realized this man didn't want to be married, and I figured out he didn't want to be married to me because he found out that thing about me that everybody did sooner or later. So when they put that baby in my arms, my heart sank. I felt like finally somebody belongs to me. That baby belonged to me, and nobody had ever belonged to me. And I would sit by the hour, I promised my baby. I would never beat her, abandon her, and discard her as I had been. And I meant it with every fiber of my being. I just adored my baby. And, you know, I still feel that way about her. She's sitting over there. I love my baby. But I took that baby and her sister to places that children should not be taken because I'm an alcoholic and I am a woman alcoholic. And when I drink, I have absolutely no choices and no rights. When I drink, I'm going to do what's in front of me to do because it's there to do. I don't know why I do those things. I just do them. I left their daddy after the second one was born because he wasn't straightening up besides I had another one checked out over here. I, I always believed in Plan B. Yeah, this guy, his name was Danny, but they called him CB. That was his nickname, stood for Crazy Bastard. So, you know. <laughs> seems to me the face has changed. It's the feelings that stay the same. This time is going to be different. huh? And I spent five years as an unprotected bar drinking woman. I know the feeling of degradation and self-loathing that a woman alcoholic uh, goes through when she's unprotected and she works and she... uh Drinks in bars. I know what it is to wake up in strange places with strange people, to have a sense of disgust about me at all times, and have secrets and don't want nobody to know anything about me. I just had to run all the time. I had to go all the time. I had to do all the time because many a times I would come home where there was not enough chemicals inside of me to kill what I had in that cold water shack when I would turn the light on and there was mice on the filthy floor and the sink would be black with cockroaches and in that shack lived those two little girls that the romance of being a mother had long since died and the responsibility for them choked me. And they had the big guys. They were little children that didn't know how to fight or how to cry or how to feel because I would scream. I couldn't stand their feelings. They were little girls that had the big eyes. They could not tell when I would hug them or when I would beat them. And many a times I'd come home and I'd start screaming and yelling and then I would start hitting. And once I hit, I wouldn't stop and I couldn't stop. And it was like watching somebody else, and I'd say to myself, for God's sake, stop. And I couldn't stop until there was blood, until there was tears, until there was screams, until there was prayers, you see. This is the ugly side of my disease. I didn't come here by myself. I brought two little girls that, if I could change anything, would have been the treatment that they got as children, as babies, were unprotected by even by me who they needed protection from. And after five years of this, I started getting letters through the mail from my Dolphin husband that was someplace in Texas, getting the cure, saying, Babes, this time it's going to be different. And you know how you and I clutch at the straws. Yes, this time it's going to be different. We made the Mexican geographic. We moved about 30 minutes from Mama. And... uh, (laughs) Bought a little ranch, you know, a little acre of ground, and chickens and the turkeys, and we were going to be farmers, as Dauphin and I. Joined the PTA, married him in the Catholic Church, and that's going to any length for a Catholic, especially since he was a Methodist. I mean, this is just to tell you how determined I was this was going to work. It was my last chance and life was over. well, It isn't long before that life gets to be too tight and it gets to be unbearable. I'm a firm believer you can place me in the best of circumstances and sooner or later I have to create what is inside of me because the madness inside of me is what i got to make the outside as. You see, first of all, my husband makes a pass at my neighbor. I go beat my neighbor up. I didn't know you're not supposed to beat up the neighbors. When you're respectable, I just... They don't shape up. i got to beat them up. And... I always try to kill all the men came into my life, too. They'd behaved. I wouldn't have tried to kill them. I just wanted them to shape up. Anyway, uh, he started making the runs to the, his connection in Orange County, and I started making the run to the wineries. The best I can say about uh, Mira Loma is in the middle of four wineries, and it's very close to Cucamonga. You know, Cucamonga is wine country south. I think some of the wine I drank never saw the grape, but it got the job done. (laughs) My drinking started to change, where before I had been a a bar drinker and a party girl, I became a bedroom drinker. Now is a time when uh, I started withdrawing from people. This is a time when I started running off anybody that wanted to come around me. They made me feel uncomfortable. They made me feel guilty. I was tired of shaping up, of shaping up for them. And so this is a time when I learned what the word despair, and agony, and utter loneliness. I know those words. I learned them in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I experienced them in a dirty bedroom in Mira Loma, where I used to lay on my bed in a fetal position and cry out and cry out in agony. Because I had come to the place in my drinking where I drank and I drank and I drank, and my mind was in agony, but... Uh, my body was drunk, and I couldn't stop this. I started looking for answers. I started going to churches and reading the Bible. I started going to churches where they they dip you, they dunk you, they sprinkle you, they throw flowers at you. They're, they study with you. I mean, all I tried all kinds of stuff till I realized God didn't like me. That's why I couldn't. I used to go to churches where they'd say. Who wants to be saved? I'd be the first one down the aisle. I'll make sure I'm getting mine. So I'd go get saved. I went home, got unsaved. I don't know. I just, oh. over and over and over again, I just got weary and I got tired. I just saved my sleeping pills because all I wanted to do was die. Dying was not something I was afraid of. I embraced the thought of dying. I love, I just wanted to die. I envied people that died. And so I saved my sleeping pills and waited until this man was home one day because I couldn't seem to kill myself and have those little girls find me. So he was watching television, and I said, I'm going to go kill myself. He said, all right. So (laughs) We had a slight communication problem. So uh, I went and took a bath and cleaned my house just in case I died. They wouldn't know how I was. So I went uh, to bed and died, and um, I came to a couple of days later. First thing I saw was a little dog there. They had replaced me already, and uh, but that's how I felt. I felt like a piece of meat that nobody wanted, you see. This man had been in bed with me both nights while I was in that coma, and never once did he consider taking me to a doctor or to a hospital, you see. Nobody wanted me around. And here I couldn't drink and I couldn't be sober, and I couldn't live and I couldn't die. I came to on what has got to be the loneliest day of my life. I had no place else to turn. When I've looked upon that day with some semblance of objectivity, I realize that my higher power has always had his hand upon my life, even upon that day. You see, there's a knock on the door, it's a lady from the PTA. If there's somebody anyone to see, a lady from the PTA. And there stood Mrs. Clean. Say, hi! Oh, Jesus. I must have been downwind from her, cause, uh, she asked me what's wrong and in a moment of weakness I let her in, I tell her what's wrong. Why I'm trying to kill myself is because of this SOB how he done me wrong. And she stayed with me and she uh cleaned me up and talked to me and I don't know what she's saying, but somehow throughout the conversation she asked me if I ever heard of Al Anon and Boy you know how you talk too long? That's the way I did. I just talked too long, couldn't back up any longer. And uh, I said, no, I'd never heard of Al-Anon, but I got the idea that if I went there, he would straighten up. So she cleaned me up and took me to Al-Anon. And somehow I didn't fit in in Al-Anon. I, um, I felt a little bit like a whorewood in a nunnery. There was uh, absolutely no identification between me and them square broads. Uh-huh. But I smiled at him. Someplace along the line, I'd heard I had a beautiful smile, so I gave him one of those. (laughs) The lights are on, but there's nobody home. smile. I found out years later, they used to laugh at me. I thought I had him fooled. Anyway, uh, I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm in the fog for the longest time. This lady introduces me to her doctor. Well, I have another source. You know how you always... Something good always comes out of everything. And, uh, I'm getting weirder. That she's still taking me to Alan, and I don't even want to go there anymore. And I hear the word release, and I told him how I was, came home and told him one day how I was going to release him. So he used to sleep with his clothes on and a knife under the pillow. And I'd sit in the corner with a big black coat on and watch him. As he'd be a snoozing, I'd go take a little peek at him. and go, oh, God, I just... love loved that it was almost sexual. You know, I just... I... And he would say unkind things to me. He'd say, baby, I may have a monkey on my back, but you got an orangutan. I thought, how dare he? One day... I came home and he was gone. He took everything with him. He wasn't planning on coming back. And that's the way that had to be. Because that life was unbearable. It was familiar. And fear has been the great compromiser of my life. I'd have stayed there forever, you see, because I didn't know there was another way to go. I'd have stayed there till I'd have killed him or forced him to kill me. Because sometimes when that madness would be inside of me and I couldn't stand it, the only thing that would cause me to have... any any comfort, anything from it is the physical violence when I would get exhausted and it would quiet the madness inside of me, you see. A lot of times we talk about violence as if it was uh, uh, not initiated. I initiated. I mean, this guy hit me every time I hit him first. I don't know, I guess he never liked the way I talked about his family and his ancestors, and he'd tell me to shut up or I'll hit you. So, well, don't tell me thou shalt not.
0: <laughs>
1: so I'd jump him, made sure he did. Anyway, it was at that time they kicked me out of Al-Anon. <laughs> and they designated this poor soul that brought me to them to take me to... A, throw, they threw me over to Alcoholics Anonymous with their husbands who they didn't like either. And... <laughs> This poor poor soul was the one designated to take me there. And, uh, she took me to this old, dilapidated old house and brought me through the back. I'm a Mexican, that's why they're bringing me through the back. And they threw, took me through the kitchen where all them Alanons are doing whatever Alanons do in the kitchen. And, uh, and I am looking in their face. I'm not about to give them the gratification of seeing the contempt and disgust that they're going to have for me. I just look at my feet and walk right through them, you know. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And the very first thing that attracted me to you was the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. I listened to that belly laughter that smile that reaches the soul and that shine in the eyes and those are the sounds of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what you're talking about, but I heard you. It was the music of Alcoholics Anonymous that drew me to you. And you, Camry, you be lucky like me. You just sit there and let it wash over your soul as it washed over my soul. And I hungered for it, and I wanted it. I just thought it's too bad I'm not an alcoholic. (laughs) alcohol. I cured alcoholism. I used to be an alcoholic. And I cured it with Benzedrine. <laughs> my case is different. But I loved how I felt when I was with you guys from the beginning. And so I looked around at all them sober, single, good-looking young guys, and I said, man, I'm going to get me one of those.
0: <laughs>
1: and I did. It was the sickest one. there it had to be. I got it right now. <laughs> And in Pomona, in those days, they used to go around the room when everybody gave their name, and when it came to me, I'd say, I'm Angie, and I'm a visitor. I ain't telling them I'm an Elanon. They kicked me out of Elanon. And I'm not an alcoholic. I might be something a little bit like Potential. But I'm really just a visitor. Nobody ever said you don't belong here. Somehow you understood I've been kicked in the teeth of my life and rejected by everybody I'd come in contact with, and I couldn't have stood any more rejection. You told me, keep coming back. The most important words that I think that you and I have to say to one another is keep coming back. Me, I'm used to people saying, keep on going, weirdo. (laughs) What a disappointment it was to me when I found out you were telling that to everybody. I, I thought it was just me. made me feel so warm. Now I'm a little uncomfortable around the way. I, so I stopped drinking and doubled up on the miltons and Benzadrin because that's what I was taking at that time, and and I got weirder. And this guy didn't want to behave, so I wanted to go kill him. They don't really like for you to want to kill him when they're sober. But he liked some other girls. I always had such bad luck with guys. They always like everybody else too. So I try to kill him, make him behave. <laughs> and, I got disgusted and moved to Pomona to be closer to the action. And uh, I walked into our room. I couldn't let him go. I didn't have a backup. So I
0: moved. I mean, talk
1: about doing it all wrong, huh? I walked into our room one day. There's this cute little boy. she had big blue eyes and blonde hair. I have an affinity for blue eyes and blonde hair. Today it's blue eyes and gray hair, because time she marches on. But uh, he just got a boy's reformatory. And he's talking, and he says he don't have a girlfriend, he don't have a surfboard, and he don't have a car. And I think to myself, come here, little boy, i take care you. He don't know what hit him, but um, after that relationship was over, he decided to become a minister, and I'd like to think that somehow, in my small way, I helped push him over to God. I don't like women, and I don't trust men, and that doesn't leave you much, and I never heard anything about withdrawals. And I never heard about anything except keep coming back and live happily ever after. Uh, you never told me about walking them streets without any skin on. You didn't tell me about them blackouts without drinking, where I'd be talking to you all of a sudden, I didn't know who you were, what we were talking about, or what day it was. I, uh, they'd say, read the book. That was uh, funny. I read the book. I read the same paragraph 10,000 times, and it still didn't penetrate you know, I, said, so I couldn't believe that anybody as smart as me could be so dumb. I just I had always had, I guess it was the delusion that I was very bright. Well, I soon found out how bright I was. I couldn't read the book, but I could read you. I loved how I felt when I was with you guys, especially when I was with that cute young thing. He was the first man that had ever been kind to me. He was the first man that had ever been gentle with me. And everywhere that he went, he wanted to take me with him. Me that had always been used and abused by every man I'd ever had. And I'd have stayed there forever if I could have, you see. Bill Wilson said someplace in his writings that the good is the enemy of the best. And I was always willing to settle for whatever there was now. I had, a, I had an, an aura about me that said, do anything you want with me. Just don't leave me. Just don't leave me. The fear of abandonment, of being discarded, was absolutely overwhelming. So, you see, I'd have stayed there forever if I could have. But my higher power had other plans for me, you see. I truly believe that you and I do not come together by accident. I truly believe we come together by divine appointment. And yet every relationship is its beginning and its parting. But when you go on your way, You take a little bit of me with you, and you leave a little bit of you behind. And we're never the same because our lives have touched. I'm glad that young man came into my life at a time when I was so vulnerable that would have given my heart to anybody that would take it, you see. And he was gentle with me. And we walked together for six and a half years. When he drank after six months, so did I, because I got well. Everybody gets well in six months. I doubt. I mean, I, the steps were very confusing to me, so I threw them out. Um, I didn't know what you meant. And uh, so I just went to meetings and smiled a lot. And uh, with that kind of an attitude, of course, and when he drank, I drank too. It was not my worst drunk. It just seemed to be my most hopeless one. Uh, where I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous, I know it worked. It worked for you. But everything always worked for you. It's like somebody wins $150,000 in Reno. You know what happens? It just never happened to me. And I came back because a man named Carson uh, called me up one day and brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I told him I couldn't go because I'd been drinking. And, you know, my drinking, it was like I had never stopped. I just took up right where I went up, where my body was drunk and my mind was in agony. I drank all the fun out of the bottles, you see, I know, because I went out and convinced myself. My sponsor says there's only one good drunk in every alcoholic, and that's the one that removes all doubt. And that's the one that removed all doubt from me, you see. But I couldn't come back to you. I felt so ashamed that you would know what a failure I was. So I'm grateful that Carson brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, Carson is a man, that everybody said, well, I used to pray on young women. I don't know about that, but Carson uh, never said anything out of line to me. He just uh, uh, saved my life by bringing me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the miracle for me is not that I've come back to Alcoholics Anonymous, because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come and go out and don't ever come back. The miracle for me is that I am still here. And that last December, the 22nd, I celebrated my 27th birthday. That is the
0: answer
1: for me. And the victory is not mine. How could it be? I belong to us. And the reason that I'm here tonight is because I belong to us. I'm just tired of going anymore. I feel like Jesus. You know, Blythe is about 100 miles past any length and driving any place... I'm an old broad now. I like to stay home with my husband and my goose and my dogs and and play solitaire with my computer and cribbage and I just love doing all that stuff. You see, I don't want to go anymore. But sometimes, somehow or another, I know something inside of me says, I got to go. I got to go because my sobriety is not mine. It belongs to us. And, uh, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Terrified. It helps to come to Alcoholics Anonymous desperate. It helps to come to Alcoholics Anonymous with no choices, when nobody cares whether I lived or died. It helps to have no place else to go but to you that you put your arm around me and you said, We'll glad you're back. You know, I don't know too much intellectually, but I could feel your sincerity, and your love for me. It terrified me. I didn't know what you expected of me, but I love felt good. In the beginning, it was a step up for me to be called an alcoholic from some of the steps stuff I'd been called. And in the beginning, they all know more than me. Aren't they all just wonderful? They talked all kinds of stuff. I don't know what they're talking about, but they were just so wonderful. And then after a while, I know more than some of them. And the day came, the day came when I hated a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know there's nobody here that crass, but I hated this guy. I mean, I used to have all this near, by the time, then I started reading, you know how stuff clears up? And you start reading, you start understanding a little bit of what they're talking about, and you want to tell them what you're doing, and you go to meetings, and you, and you go, Alcoholic and I'll Just used to piss me off. I hated this guy. I hated this guy. I hated the way he walked, the way he talked, the way he looked, the way he smelled, the way... And I know I hated him because I, he went to a meeting every night. He was there every night. I mean, he was over 12 and a half years unmarred by a day of growth. I mean, I'm on, I'm on... <laughs> I'm a newcomer. I'm supposed to go every night. What's he doing 12 and a half years still going every night? And I wasn't happy till I saw him, you know. <laughs> now, I don't know what to do with all these feelings because you say uh, resentments are the number one offender and for the alcoholic it's fatal. And I said, Jesus Christ. Now, I still don't like women anymore just because I'm sober. I don't like those that got a lot of time because they look at you. I don't want... I, I don't want them looking at me. I don't know what their look is seeing, but I don't want them to see it. Today, I know they do know. That's what made me uncomfortable. I don't like them young ones because I got this young, sweet thing. and I'm like a monkey with its monklet, trying to protect him from all them young girls. But the guys are always much more uh friendly. Uh. Especially when you're cutesy cute and 32, and they like to pat you on the head, and yes, and rub you, you know, rub against your boobs and pretend they didn't, you know. <laughs> so I don't know what to do with all these resentments. So I go to some of the men that look like they talk- you know what, they're talking about God's life, sober before God did. And it uh, put my smile, you know, that smile. I say, how do you get over resentments? And they say, turn it over, easy, does it, this two shall pass one day at a time, go home, read the book it's coming back and don't worry. So i go home and do it, and i come back the next night and check it out. And I looked at it. <laughs> There's some people you just love to hate, don't you? I didn't want to go back and tell you, so I would go to somebody else. Again, I'd ask you. And again, they'd say, turn it over easy, doesn't this too shall pass one day at a time? Go home, read the book, keep coming back, and don't drink. After a a, while, I got the message. You don't know the answer either. (laughs) I just keep doing that stuff so you won't find out there's a fraud among you. I was terrified you kicked me out. I didn't never knew you could come, back, come into a meeting late or leave early. I just thought you just had to go in there and suffer, no matter how bad it was. One day this guy had some kind of a little old problem, nothing major like mine. I had lots of problems. Money. Money and men were my problems. I always thought if I could finally find a man... I could have enough money, preferably a man with money. Is that way he killed two birds with one stone. This guy's talking about some dribble, you know, somebody's got terminal illness or something. And uh, he starts to cry, and I'm embarrassed. I said, God, he's crying. How embarrassing. Hasn't he ever heard of John Wayne, Iwo Jima, Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata? Somebody, for God's sake, is crying. <coughs> After the meeting, they all go put their armor on me. I think, oh, heck. They all go put their armor on him and I think I'm gonna have to go hug him too.
0: <laughs>
1: so I go give him one of them stiff arm hugs. You know them stiff arm hugs? <laughs> just in case something he's got contagious, you know. <laughs> he didn't have any class. He just moved right in and on my shoulder and started to cry. Oh, Jesus, what do you do then? And you know, something happened. Something happened to me. The pain in him reached out and touched the pain in me. Because certainly I had known pain in my life. And your pain had never been important to me. My pain was. It was the very first time somebody else's pain reached out and touched my pain. And the love that you had been giving me and showering me, without any reservation, without any expectation, reached out and touched him, you see. And I, for the very first time, I cared for another human being. For the first time, I cared for a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was a turning point for me. There have been many, many turning points, but that was the first one for me. I was sober nine months, and it was the longest time that I ever felt like I was sober. And it was a beginning of me feeling that I belonged here, that I belonged here. I never belonged here before. I was always not belonging over there or in here, always feeling like I have to pretend to you. I always pretended everywhere I went that I belonged. But this was the first time that I felt like I belonged here. And, you know, I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. Wherever I go today, uh, wherever uh, that I am with you, I have the same feeling of belonging. I have found a God of my very own here in Alcoholics College Anonymous, a personal something inside of me that has been tapped someplace along the way. I don't know how it happened. I just know that these steps that we have do not care who work them, do not care how sincere I was. I was never sincere or believed that those steps would work. I just did them just to please you. Besides, I was a scared Johnny Harris would never talk to me again if I didn't do him. He was uh, my hero. Johnny Harris was my hero. Didn't hurt that he was good looking and blue, But he always talked to me and inspired something in me, the hunger and the love of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what he inspired inside of me. And, uh, and uh, uh, so I kept doing a lot of the things that you told me to do. But uh, I had a sponsor, and she volunteered to be my sponsor. And this lady told me I had to give up that young man, or one day he'd give me up. And uh, she said I had to stay home and learn to be a mother. And I didn't know how to be a mother. I didn't even want the job. And uh, uh, I didn't know how to live without a man. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about somebody to hold me close and make that lonely, horrible something go away for a little while. So I did the most reasonable thing for me, is I gave up the sponsor. She, she
0: she made me feel
1: guilty. But it's been quite a journey for me. You married that young man, knowing one day he'd leave, knowing I had ruined my children, and the day came when my higher power said it's time. My children started drinking and uh, taking drugs. as I had prayed, God spare my babies. He didn't spare my babies. They came home one day, and this one, that's the area, came home with a burn the size of a silver dollar in her chest where people had been putting cigarettes out on. And the other one that was a year younger than her ran off to be to Ohio. I never knew any Mexicans in Ohio. I hated my mother, only went half an hour away, so Jesus Christ. I had a terrible depression. I sunk into a hole. And again, I contemplated an attempted at suicide. That young man went and took me to the psych ward, went home, packed his clothes and left me. And I felt devastated. I felt betrayed. You had tell me, told me I'd been, be the best me I'd ever been. And here I was, the best me I'd ever been. And I was still a failure. All I wanted was to be a good mother and to be a good wife, to have some home, some place, that some family that belonged to me. And here I was still the ugly person inside. And so I made peace with my God at that time. I thought about them people and what I wanted from them and they wouldn't behave. I said, screw them, all and do what the goddamn please, I'm tired. I don't know about you guys, but for me that means surrender and the only language I understand. I didn't know about expectations of other people. I didn't know that uh, the only person that had any chance of changing was me, only my attitude because I... Uh, I not change my character defects. If there's any characters that have been removed, it's been quite by accident. And uh, uh, God has says, you want what? Ha, ha, ha. I made peace with my God. I said, okay, God, I'm never going to be happy again. All you ever want me to do is work with a sick woman drunk and so let him puke on me. And you know he has a weird chance of humor. When I want something so bad, oh, dear God, if you just give me this one time, I'll never ask for nothing again. I'll say ten Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers and go to Mass and communion and da-da-da-da-da. And he said, as
0: soon as you say, oh,
1: screw it, here it comes, here it comes. I, I don't know. I'm not talking about that man came back. It's just that uh, he went on to another life. But I got when I got to the other side, you know, you have to go through a certain Period there where where you wanna put a shotgun about two inches from his belly and blow his guts all over the place or pour booze in his coffee or run him down the freeway back and forth, back and forth till till he's flat like tortilla. <coughs> My sponsor says they don't lock you up for being crazy only for acting crazy. And she also assures me that if God removes all my character defects, I'll disappear. So... (laughs) When I got to the other side, I touched a power and a strength that was way down inside of me. And I realized that nothing and nobody could ever own me again. Because after all that's said and done, there's only you and me, God, anyway. Hmm? There's only you and me, God, anyway. My job is to trust God, to turn my will, will and my life over to his care and, and turn it in every day by saying, how can, you, how can I best serve you? How can I best serve you is my prayer. It says those are thoughts that must go with us constantly. And that's what I try to do today. But, I, you know, I had a lot of stuff to go through to get to that place, A lot of, a lot of people and a lot of things to go through. Now, also, I started working with women. Now, you know, I don't care what happens to them. I just, they are such whiners. I mean, that's a job I like for myself. I don't like them whining. And I take them to meetings. I bring them home and stay with me, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I act to see if I care. I don't care. But someplace along the way, God throws in a joker. You know, you don't care. One day you care where that come from. Where'd that come from? You start telling them all this tale of woe and they start laughing. And now uh, you don't know why the, what's going on here. This program is funny. People in here, we're funny. <clears throat> we got the language of the heart that don't take ourselves so serious. And when we do, we say, oh. <laughs> My children came back. I don't even want them to come back. They... They came back. They went to work. I went to school and became self-supporting through my own contributions. (laughs) I've kept falling in love. I said, you know, one day at a time I don't drink because I'm an alcoholic. One one day at a time I don't steal because my sponsor won't let me. And one day at a time I don't get married because there ain't life after marriage. I could get married any weekend I wanted. that's what I chose to do. I learned to live alone. I'm one of those women that had to live alone to find out the difference between being alone and being lonely. I found that difference. I found they don't always necessarily go together. That there's such a feeling in being in a relationship that that I have to beggar inside of me that makes me feel lonelier. I need somebody. I didn't know that. I have needed somebody that I could cherish, that I could love without any reservation. I didn't know about loving and just for the joy of seeing them be happy. I just thought, if I do something for you, where's mine? Where's mine? And my my, my sister, who had been uh, always held up as an example for me, died. And she killed herself. And she had the same disease that you and I had, have. And uh, she didn't want what we had. First of all, she checked me out and didn't want what I had. And she said, I was never as bad as you, Angie, and maybe she wasn't. And so she, But she killed herself, and I was the one that had to find her, and I could not believe what was before my eyes. I know today that God spared me not to teach you, to save you, but to share my life with you. I know that I am God's melody of life, and he sings His song through me. That someplace, somewhere, somebody needs to hear the places I come to. Well, it was around that time I became a grandma. God, I may have been a rotten mother, but I'm a good grandma. I found out, I found out how to get along with kids. Just give them everything they want. (laughs) It was also pretty close to that time I fell in love again. Oh, Jesus. I fell in love with a newcomer. If that offends any spiritual giants, I'll tell you it offended me. But uh, you know, he was so cute. He was so different from anybody I ever known. He never knew anybody like me. There is a cowboy farmer. I never knew no cowboy farmers. I was his counselor in the treatment program. I, I know it. I know all that stuff. You know I and mean?
0: <laughs>
1: I know you're not supposed to do that. He went home and started sending flowers and cards and phone calls and, well,
0: <laughs>
1: I took him to a conference with me once and, you know, his eyes are still spinning and his head's going, well, kind of the little dogs that they have, the Mexicans that we have.
0: <laughs>
1: Here comes my friend Frank Sloan. You know, your friends ain't got no class. And he looks at me, and he looks at him. I'm trying to hide him back here. He says, is he with you? And, well, you know, I can't say it. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know it's coming. He says, is he one of us? Well, he says he's still got the red, red nose and goes like...
0: <coughs> <laughs> and he says, how long's
1: this guy been sober? I said,
0: oh, there it is.
1: He said, Jesus Christ, Angie, give that poor guy a break. Let him get off, <laughs> of course. So I went whining to my sponsor. But they... <laughs> and she says, Angie, he's a nice guy. If you don't want him, I'll take him. <laughs> It's good enough for my sponsor. I hope some of you have had the privilege of meeting my sponsors, Mary Reagan, and though she doesn't talk anymore, when I grow up, I want to be like my sponsor. You know, she talks to me in ways that so I talk that way to the people I sponsor. they never talk to me again. She tells me stuff like, and you don't have to sit in your own shit just cause it's warm or. Uh, when life's really heavy and you know how you're supposed to go to your sponsor, she says, who's not doing it your way? Go, go read the last page of Step 7 and the 12 and 12. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, that shapes me up. I'll be darned if that old broad's going to get it over on me. Well, I also found out another secret, another secret at that time. That if you're afraid somebody's going to find out something about you, just tell them. And then you won't be afraid, because it's some secrets that make me feel different from you, you see. I, it really is freeing to say, I don't care who knows me. This is who I am, and that's what I'm about. The good news is that Richard and I will be uh, married 13 years next month. Huh? <coughs> He had 14 years uh, last uh, June. I let him have a year before we got married. I kept my eye on him, though. (coughs) I took my oldest granddaughter to a conference once, and I had a big white blouse. that covers a multitude of tortillas and beans. and White pants. And uh, she looked up at me and says, Grandma, you look just like the white angel. And I saw that that child's shiny face, and she looked at me with that magic that the, our grandkids have for us, you see. She never had to see me look like a monster or be a monster like her her mother has, you see. All she's seen is what you've done with me. Another miracle that has happened is that my daughter celebrated 12 years as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in <laughs> It's great to be friends with one's children. We talk about everything, including sex. You know, we we talk about all kinds of stuff. And her younger daughter, and probably some of you heard me when she was still out there. My youngest daughter has four years in Alcoholics Anonymous. His grace has certainly blessed our family, is not it? We have a sober family. And it's wonderful to walk in the sunlight of the Spirit. Richard and I, I can't remember the last time we had a fight. Usually when we have a fight, we say, it's usually in public and call each other four-letter words, you know. But Jesus has been mine. I can't remember the last time my daughters and I had a crossword, you see. We are a family that works a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And remember that tomorrow is not promised to anybody, that if there's any time, that it's today. The love is for